0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Now, I wasn't going to bring that up, Pratt, that I was wearing a Virginia tie today. Um, but since you did, being an Auburn fan, um, I, just want, I just want to say that um, I think that I'm really proud of of all of you Auburn fans that have bumper stickers that say one second left on the clock. uh, uh, I appreciate that. That's really great. Obviously there are a lot of Alabama people here like they don't want to talk about kick six but um, what goes around comes around. I think this tournament generally has taken years off my life. I I told someone last night that I'm gonna file for disability. Um, It really is out of control and um, so uh, we'll see and in fact yesterday afternoon uh, I had a wedding that didn't conflict with the game but the wedding was outdoors and they wanted a crucifer and so the guy that was the crucifer was about to leave town he said can you take the cross back to the advent and uh, we didn't do a good job of communicating that we had taken it and so when people saw me coming in this morning with the cross they looked at me and they said, You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> like, I know exactly what you were doing. Um, uh, you know, just a quarter turn here and a quarter turn there, it gets pretty good reception. So, all right. Well, as we'll see this morning in Hebrews, we don't believe in that kind of stuff. So if you would open uh, to page 1007 in your pew Bibles, otherwise this may not make any sense. And I know that the recording was a little bit off from last week, but I hope that you are able to to get online and hear it. Uh, I think that some people tweaked it a little bit so that it might be a little bit clearer than uh, it first was. But we certainly were dealing with some sound problems. But we're in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with the 19th verse on page 1007. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that we would know what it means to be real before you and that we would draw near to you with confidence, uh, knowing who we are, but above all, who you are in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So we've reached the turning point in Hebrews. Uh, Heavy doctrine over the past couple weeks, uh, especially concerning Jesus uh, and his, just how amazing Jesus is and what He's done for us through the cross, and certainly Jesus as our High Priest. And it was easy to get bogged down into certain things because because the author of Hebrews is addressing Jewish Christians. And so he's using Jewish language and Jewish images, especially images that came from the Old Testament sacrificial system. And I hope that I was somewhat helpful in unpacking uh, all of that for us, because it's incredibly important that we understand that. Because we can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old, and we can't understand the Old Testament without understanding the New. Because the entirety of the Old Testament is pointing toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said last week, maybe you didn't hear me, as I said last week, it is as if Jesus is the person who has come into history and his shadow is cast back all over the Old Testament. And so are all these shadows or types that we encounter in the Old Testament that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether they be the temple rituals... The sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, we spent a little bit of time talking about the new covenant initiated at the Last Supper with the Lord Jesus. Where at a normal Passover supper, there would be the lamb that had been slain and the blood put over the lentil of the, door, the mantle of the door uh, and they would be eating that very lamb. But at the Last Supper, there is Jesus saying, this is my body which is given for you. I'm the Paschal Lamb. I'm the Lamb that is slain for the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. And so those Old Testament things point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though they're shadows, the author of Hebrews tells us it wouldn't be right to simply dismiss them. Because you can't have a shadow without the real thing. You have to have a body in order to cast a shadow. So a shadow points to a reality, and the reality is Jesus Christ. But what these Hebrew Christians were doing is they were going back and they were putting their trust in shadows. Now, as I said, very few of you are sacrificing goats and lambs and heifers and things like that uh, in your house. If uh, The HOA wouldn't like that. You're not doing that, but there are things that you're doing that are mere shadows uh, of the real thing that you're putting your trust in. And actually the author of Hebrews gets into that today. And really what he wants to talk about is what it means to be real before God. What does real faith look like? How is it manifested in the life of the believer? And so he turns away from doctrine and starts to talk about exhorting these Hebrew Christians. In light of that, Now that you know that, now what? And so time and time again, just in this little section, we hear the author saying, let us. Let us. Now, don't let me forget um, consideration because I'm guaranteed to forget it today. So if I get to the end and someone says, well, you didn't talk about consideration, um, stop me. Okay. Okay. So we get to a word. Anytime you see that word in verse 19 anywhere in the Bible, therefore. The author is talking about everything that came before that. So this is a huge build up to get to chapter 10 verse 19. This is a break in the letter. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Actually, before we get to that, one of the things that is interesting about this, and as I said very early on, we're not exactly sure who wrote this letter However, uh, a lot of people would say Paul wrote the letter. I'm not so sure that's true, but regardless, we still know that it's God's word. But here in Hebrews, something interesting happens. And whether um, it was Paul or not, actually, I think it helps us if it wasn't Paul. If you look very closely, you see that the implications of what the author is talking about falls under three headings moving forward. He exhorts them to faith in verse 22. He exhorts them to hope in verse 23. And what do you think the third thing is going to be? Have you heard this before? Who said it? Love, faith, hope, and love, which we find in verses 24 and 25. And then we'll see that he spends chapter 11 talking about faith, chapter 12 talking about hope, and chapter 13 talking about love. Now where have we heard that before? Come on, y'all been to weddings? 1 Corinthians 13, right? That, uh, that's where we've heard this before. And 1 Corinthians was authored by who? Paul. But I think it's more powerful if it's not Paul because it means what? It's not some drum that Paul is hammering away at about faith, hope, and love, but this is something that the church was grappling with and was being very real about and intentional about, about faith, hope, and love uh, being important in the life of the church. And so he talks about this faith uh, leading into it. But before that, this faith is built upon the confidence that we have to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And he's referring back, of course, to the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctum in the temple or in the tabernacle. But now he's talking about what? What did the Tabernacle, re- I mean, what did the Holy of Holies represent? Who was there? The presence of God Almighty. Once a year, one man. But now what? All people for all time. And so we're actually able to step into the presence of God, which is a radical notion, because remember these are Jewish ears listening to this, to be told, do you know that you have unfettered access to God the Father, that you can draw near to Him and into His presence? Now, 21st century Americans, we think... Well, of course we do. We believe in democracy. But this is a radical notion to actually be able to draw near to God. And there's a sense in which they still don't quite believe it. But my sins are so great. And it wasn't all that long ago where I was putting my faith and trust in this one sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement. But now you're telling me that I can go into the presence of Almighty God at any moment. And the author of Hebrews is saying, well, of course you can. But not because of who you are, but by the blood of Jesus. And this word confidence here in verse 19 actually means literally to speak freely. To have a freedom of speech. So you can go into God's presence and have a real conversation with him. What kind of conversation did the high priest have when he went into the Holy of Holies? None. It was get in, get out. Remember the rope around the ankle. You know, if you have to go into a room to have a conversation with someone with a rope around the ankle, not much of a conversation. But it's almost like when you go to prison and you've got that, that plexiglass between you and the, and the prisoner, And there's still a sense of anxiety in those movies you watch of even though there's plexiglass there, it's still a sort of tense, frightening moment. There's almost a sense that with the high priest going in on that day, that they almost hope they don't run into God. I hope he's gone today. But here, the author of Hebrews says, no, no, brothers and sisters, we can go into God's presence and speak freely because of the blood of Jesus which speaks a greater word than the blood of goats and bulls and lambs because remember the blood of the sacrifices in the old testament only covered the sin covered it up like if you have a stain on the floor or there's some sort of I grew up with brothers and so inevitably some Someone walked in the house one time and knew my mother well enough to say, well, that's a really unusual place to hang your picture. Why did you hang it there? And she said, well, my boys decide where to hang them. And she moved it and there was a hole in the drywall. The hole's still there. My mother just covered it up with with a picture. But what does Jesus do? His sacrifice once and for all is a remittance for sins. It's as if the hole in the wall isn't there at all. No one can see it, and no one can notice it. And God has a perfect memory in that he's the only person that can not only remember whatever he wants to remember, he can also forget what he wants to forget. And he is chosen, in verse 17 it tells us, that I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And so if our sin is being held before God then it's us telling him about it. Now, there is still, obviously, a sense in which we have to repent. Not a sense. There's a command that we would repent. And so we're coming to God, though, not based on uh, our ability to come before him because we're really not all that bad, nor are we coming to him because we've been able to cover up our sins somehow, but we're coming to him because of what Jesus has done on the cross full stop. That's how we have entry with the Father, and he doesn't remember our sins anymore, which means he looks at us as he looks upon his son, Jesus. The way the Bible talks about it is that we've been clothed in his righteousness. Jesus tells a parable about this, doesn't he? About the wedding banquet, go out and invite people. Well, they don't want to come. They've got all kinds of things going on. Well, in that case, I want you to go to the highways and byways and invite anybody that you can and tell them to come to this great wedding banquet. And so they come, and the the father is walking through the wedding banquet and sees this one guy from the highways and byways who's sipping uh, champagne or whatever it is that he's sipping, and uh, and he is still dressed in his normal clothes. And what what is the response of the father to him? Chuck him. And we don't like that because what happened to the nice guy that said go into the ditches and the highways and byways and and bring anybody and everybody in? Well, uh, also it helps to know the background of this. One, that you would not come into a wedding reception without wearing a wedding garment. And we learn in that parable that the father actually provides the wedding garments for the guests. But this one guest said what? I'm not going to wear that. I kind of like the way that I look now. And then he went, thinking that he could go in with his own garments. But the father says, no, the invitation is there. You've been invited. But if you think that you can come in wearing your dirty, sinful rags, you've got another thing coming. You've got to take off the old coat and put on the new. And the new code is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, saying, I have been, which we're going to get to in a minute, I've been, my heart has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and my body has been washed with pure water and therefore I can have fellowship with God and enter into this holy place, which is a new and living way that he's opened through us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, some of you know that um, my father's side of the family is Scottish. And when I say that, I don't mean we like Scottish things, or that we have a, a tenuous connection from hundreds of years ago uh, to Scotland. Um, a couple of my father's first cousins were born in Scotland. Um, growing up, we would use little Scottish words. I have a cousin named Wee Doug, who is 65 years old, and because uh, he's named after his father, Douglas. And my great-grandfather was born and lived in Scotland for a good while. I never knew him, but I knew his older sister. My Aunt Molly was born in 1899 and died in 2001. She lived in three centuries. Can you believe that? And Aunt Molly still had a, a pretty strong accent. And she was the only one in the family that really was a believer. And she would talk about believers as being far bend with God. Have you ever heard that? Well, you probably haven't unless Scotland is your native Heathland. Uh, But she would say that person has far been with God. And what did she mean by that? She meant that that person had been with God, had seen God, and knew God in the depths of their being. They're far been with God. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us about having a true heart. And I'd forgotten about it until I heard uh, Scott preaching a sermon recently and talked about being far bent with God. And I thought that was Aunt Molly. She talked about this. And it means to be able to approach God's throne with a true heart. And how many of us do this? How many of us actually relate to God in a genuine manner? Rooted in reality as to who we are. Well, in fact, the the great irony is that the greatest temptation that we suffer is to be unreal with God when we come to Him and we approach Him. And in fact, many of us would rather have the reputation of being far-bend with God than the reality. I mean, I know I would. No, it's nice when people say, Oh, he's been far been with God, or, or that person really knows the Lord. They're very close to the Lord. Uh, but in reality, often that kind of stuff is a projection. And what the author of Hebrews is talking about is, are we really real with God? Do we really know who we are and what it costs for us to come into the presence of God? And that we don't neglect to come into the presence of God, but we enter with joy into the presence of our Heavenly Father and approach the throne of grace. Or do we come before Him in a shadowy manner? Regardless of what that might be. It might be, you know, God, I've been very good lately. Uh, I've, I, 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 you, know, it's, um, you know, for me, it's, I, I vacuumed the living room for my wife which is quite an accomplishment. Uh, I've been a great husband this week or I've I've read my Bible every single day. Uh, I'm coming to you now in prayer and wouldn't it be nice if you were to reward me for that or at least to show me some grace and goodness. And this is what we mean anytime we say in our lives why can't the ball just bounce in my direction for once? Why can't I just catch a break Now the Lord knows that most of us surely could use such a break. But often what we think when we say we want the ball to bounce in our direction is that God, you're getting it wrong and I'd like for you to do it my way because I'd feel much better about things if that were the case. That's not being honest with God. That's not being real with God. That's not living into the reality of who we are and who God is. Because when we come into God's presence, what does that do? It strips us. We come before him naked and blind, wretched and poor. I love that verse from the Old Testament. Without money, come and buy. How can you come and buy without money? Because God himself provides the means by which you may come into his presence. He pays the cost through his son, Jesus. So standing before God is uh, something that renders us incredibly vulnerable. It's an intimate moment. And that's what it means to draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith. Because we know our own vulnerability... We know the depths of our sin and yet we come with a full assurance of faith. Why? Because of our hearts being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, as I said last week, that uh, these things here point back to Leviticus chapter 8, this sprinkling of water. If you go to the temple steps in uh, Jerusalem today, you'll find all, uh, there are apparently hundreds and hundreds of them, but these mikvah baths, that before you went into the temple, what would you do? You'd take a bath, right? You'd take a bath, and then you'd go up into, you can see the gateway to this, it's all bricked over, but uh, you would go into uh, the gates, and uh, that is, uh, there was a, a ritual purification that would take place. And so it was, too, that the priest, before they went in uh, to uh, on the day of atonement, to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, they themselves would wash and they would be sprinkled with blood. In fact, they would put a mark of blood on their earlobe, on their thumb, and on their foot. I mentioned it last week. It's a little bit like, you know, if they did run into the presence of God, you know, they had three forms of identification. Foot, thumb, ear. Look, I'm able to come into your presence. And the author of Hebrews says that, that God has done this through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we've been washed. And so this first bit about faith, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And that word gets a lot of bad credit in, or bad rap in our society today. And I want you to think of faith, one, as a gift that God gives. But two, a way to define faith biblically is to trust, rely, and depend upon God. This he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam, as the hymn hymn writer said, that God instills in our heart as we meditate upon who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he's done, that then knowing full well that we're able to enter into God's presence, that we can trust, rely, and depend upon him. And so the author of Hebrews is spurring us on to do just that. But then he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What's the big problem for the Hebrew Christians? They're wavering. They're crumbling under the societal pressures. They're crumbling uh, uh, under the community pressures uh, that they're experiencing uh, in, uh, in their community. And they're starting to go back to look to the shadow of things rather than the reality of things. And so the author of Hebrews says, hold fast the confession of faith of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful now it's a confession it's not a profession right you notice this word here it's a confession of faith I believe and he alludes to this earlier on in Hebrews remember when we when he talked about Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father and so when we say the Creed and say he sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, what we're saying is that it's finished. If Jesus still had work to do, he wouldn't be seated. You only get to sit down when you're done. Now, of course, he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Absolutely. And someone brought up a really good point last week and said, well, Andrew, what about the stoning of Stephen, where Stephen saw Jesus standing? And I told them to go away and pray about it, and I'd get back to them. And I don't see them here this morning, uh, so I'm not going to address that. But it's a good point, and I, I, I am looking at that. But the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is seated because the work is finished. So when we stand and say the creed, one, we use I language. Why? Because you're appropriating it for yourself. You're confessing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. This is what I believe I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and that because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, my standing before God is not questioned, because he's seated. I even often, the prayer that I pray, when, do you all often wonder what we're praying here? Um, I normally, I don't know what the other guys are praying, but I pray here at the steps before I pray into the pulpit, and I uh, have an extemporaneous prayer but as I get up and I walk into the pulpit uh, I'll let you in in a little secret I, I don't know when I've not done this but every time I do it I say I believe in the Holy Spirit I believe I'm confessing it I'm con- and when I confess that what I'm saying is that it's not you Andrew if anybody is going to be changed this morning or this evening it's because the Holy Spirit is doing the work And I believe in him, that he is able. Isn't that what Hebrews is saying? For he who promised is faithful. So even when you're wavering, is Jesus wavering? Not at all. He is faithful. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to hurry through uh, hope. So there's our hope. And then finally, love. Love. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this is a word for today if there ever was one. Uh, There are times uh, where uh, even as one who was called uh, to the ministry of word and sacrament in the church, that when I wake up on Sunday mornings, I think, wouldn't it be nice just to have a little bit of a lie in? Uh, I've heard it before that this morning we're going to be wor- worshiping at St. Uh, Mattress by the Springs or Church of the Holy Comforter. And you may even take it one step further spiritually and say, uh, because my heart's not in the right place. A- and what does my presence, when God's people are gathered to worship together, what could I possibly offer in coming before him with my brothers and sisters? But the author of Hebrews says, no, no, no. We need to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Consider. If there's one thing that our culture lacks today, it is consideration. How many of you ever found yourself doing that? Well, I just assumed that so-and-so needed thus and such. Meaning what? I, I didn't stop to consider. I didn't stop to think about that. You know, the, the neighbor down the street who has been lax in their attendance at coming on Sunday mornings, and you've just thought, well, they've got a lot going on and they're busy. But maybe not. Have you considered that there actually might be something more going on in their heart? I mean, I found that to be the case. If you can break through the unreality of what they're saying, there's normally something much deeper at play and something very spiritual at play that God might be using you so that you might stir that other person up to love and good works. But we never think about it. Why? Because we've never stopped to consider what God might be calling us to do to stir one another up. Because I know that I need to be stirred up. How about you? And even when I do feel, you know, Lord, today's not the day, I don't even think that there's a word for me today in coming to church, Uh, and so I really don't want to be here. The times that I do come that I find myself blessed by being here, even if I don't hear necessarily a word, but but by seeing brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the one time of week when we all get to get together. It doesn't happen very often. And so just to be in one another's presence is an amazing gift. I was listening to the radio uh, uh, yesterday morning and it was on one of those stations to the left of the dial that I normally don't listen to. And it was some sort of Christian radio broadcast that was dramatizing the experience of a Bible translator uh, in in some far-off land. And the translator and his wife and child and one person in their village were the only believers in the whole village within something like a hundred-mile radius of where they were. And if there was anything that was said in that radio drama that stuck with me it was how precious the fellowship that the four of them shared and how much the three missionary from the, the three from the missionary family took for granted the brothers and sisters they had in the Lord Jesus Christ when they were stateside it's a beautiful and it's a wonderful gift and the author of Hebrews is saying don't neglect it but be considerate as to how you might stir up your brother or your sister to love in good works. Because this is the time when we love on one another, when we're here this morning. You know, I, I've told you before, I, I'm more in the habit now when people would come up to me and say, I'm dealing with this and such. I used to say, well, I'll pray for you. But now I realize if I say that, guess what? I'll never do it. Or if I do, it'll sort of be an afterthought when I see the person again. So what I've gotten into the habit of doing is actually when someone says, uh, I need someone to pray for me about this, keep that in mind. I actually now say, let's pray about it right now, right? Because that's the considerate thing to do. And so whether it's in Clingman Commons or wherever it might be, let us go before the throne of grace together because of Jesus who has provided a new and living way through the curtain that is his flesh. But also encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, it's not just looking back at history where Jesus cast his shadow. It's looking forward to the day when he comes again, which is a glorious day which is a day that I long for uh, in my life. So faith, hope, and love. And we'll begin to move on to those things as we move forward. But as the day is drawing near, so too has our time come to an end. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.